Good morning. Our text uh, for today comes from Matthew verses 29, chapter 5, verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can take a seat. That chipper little verse. Let's get it. We're going to actually start in 27 and 28, and then we'll jump into 29 and and 30 as well. But uh, my name's Sean. If I don't know you, uh, welcome to Pella. So if you're not familiar with uh, who we are, um, we are a mission model. So we want to be in low-income areas and serve those areas uh, physically and spiritually. So we actually have a building two doors down that actually over the next couple weeks, our kids are going to start moving in there, which is really exciting. And then uh, we'll make the the trek over there once we get the other main area uh, finishing touches as well. Um, I'm going to pray for us for our time. Uh, there's two things I want to say up front. Number one, uh, today we're going to pre- be using some pretty strong language. We try to put something out on social media to uh, give you guys a heads up. So if there's any kids in the room or you got your any kids in the room, just an FYI, at some point in the next couple minutes, it might be good uh, to not have them be in the room. Um, and then the second thing is I'm going to pray. When I pray, I'll pray for our time. I also want to pray for the last week of our All Call Date initiative as we continue to gather clothes and, and then pass those out. But I'm also going to pray for Ukraine. I know um, Brock prayed uh, a written prayer um, from the uh, uh, the Presbyterian book, but um, I want to pray specifically for all that's going on there as well for us to, as a church to lift them up. Um, so let's pray together and then we'll, uh, we'll jump into our text. Father, we come to you right now. And first and foremost, we recognize who you are. You are holy. You are worthy. Um, and that's good news because um, we come to you for all standards of holiness, um, all standards of worthiness. And when we talk about sex and a sexual ethic, we're relying heavily on you and what you have to say about it. So help us navigate this time. Illuminate the text for us. Let us see it the way you want us to see it. We want to grow in our faith because of it. Um, so we pray, Romans ten seventeen that our faith would grow as we hearing, uh, by hearing of the word. And so we pray that would take place. Also, that it would be used as a discerner of our innermost thoughts. We have a lot of things hidden away. That's especially true when it comes to um, the conversation on sex. So be with us in that. Um, we also pray that you'd continue to use us to provide clothes for our community around us. We pray for those um, people around the world who don't have adequate uh, clothes as well. We pray that you'd be with them. Um, and then lastly, God, we pray for all that's going on um, with this Russia and Ukraine situation. It's obviously known by all of us. It's, it's seen what's going on. So we pray um, that you would protect the people there. Um, I pray a wild prayer, even though I don't think it would be even possible to be true, God, that you would even save Putin and that you would use uh, missionaries there to involve themselves into wild circumstances. I mean, you've done crazier things than that. So we pray for that. We pray, God, that you would um, use the missionaries on the ground and the church on the ground to be a light and salt um, in such chaos in Ukraine right now, God, that you'd use our brothers and sisters um, for really, really great works of your kingdom. Um, be with them. Uh, we pray you'd be with us now. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so if you haven't been with us, our context is the book of Matthew. Matthew um, is uh, an evangelist who's writing to Jews, and we're in chapter five right now. So you're kind of coming, for, you've missed four chapters. It's not that big of a deal because chapter five actually, can you turn this down for a little bit, Sam? This is, I like to yell in the microphone. I, I prefer to go no mic, FYI. Johnny makes me wear a mic. So um, But here's where we are. We're in this moment where Jesus is giving this sermon. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 is this sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking to his disciples in a greater circle, uh, outward circle there that he's talking to. And he's going to give us his ethics. 
his ways of saying, this is the way that my country operates, my kingdom, my people, they operate this way. And we're going to get into the nuances of all these things. So there's a lot of us as believers who've said, I want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus. Well, the Sermon on the Mount is the, the place to start. As a matter of fact, in the early church, before you were baptized, you had to memorize the Sermon on the Mount because it had the ethics of the kingdom. And, and what we're going to be talking about today is a sexual ethic, the sexual ethic of Jesus. Um, so I actually want to first uh, read what Gabby came up and read, um, and we'll come back and unpack this, but we're going to start in verses 29 and 30, then we'll go back and start in verse 27 is where our text actually begins. It says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Um, I'm going to do the same thing I did last week. I want you to imagine with me for a second, you're at a coffee shop this time, and in a coffee shop, you're sitting there, and you're you're watching an older man discipling this this uh, younger man. You don't know anything about Jesus or Christianity, and you hear this older man just say, "Yeah, you should cut off your hand, okay, or you should gouge out your eye." What what would cause something that extreme to be said, right? And that's what we want to get at, right? This is the, the sexual ethic that we want to be, begin to, to navigate. So with that being said, let's start in verse 27. You haven't been with us before? It's going to be a big Bible study together, okay? We're going to break these things down verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we just happen to be in these four verses here. It says this, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. We heard the same language last week, didn't we? You've heard that it said, except last week it added, you've heard that it was said from the ancients, people of old, they've they've, uh, given us ways to understand it. But specifically here he's quoting, you've heard that it was said, not from the ancients, he's giving us directly the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Now we're gonna actually come back to verse 27. So give me some grace on moving forward because I think he's quoting the seventh and the part of, or at least the understanding of the 10th commandment. Um, And we'll we'll get into that in a minute. It says this in verse 28 though, but... I say to you, same format he gave us last week, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is where we're gonna spend most of our time together in verse 28, okay? Few things, textual variants for you to be aware of, meaning um, translations that could go a different way. There's two translations that you could actually translate verse 28. One, it could say, one who... Um, who looks at a woman with the intention of committing adultery, meaning you're looking at her not with uh, um, lustful, uh, adulterous intent, but you're looking at her desiring to commit adultery. And I say that because um, we understand the seventh commandment as a husband and a wife and a husband and a wife and a husband is longing to be with this wife. That's kind of um, one way you can understand it. And honestly, I'm not saying this is the right translation, but it is very possible we can actually translate this one who looks at a woman for the purpose of getting her to lust after him. I think that's a, that could be an appropriate translation. Now, whatever it is, <clears throat> that's, we don't, we're not missing anything when we read, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, here's what we're doing. The, the, the ancients, the people, when they hear you shouldn't commit adultery, what did they do? We talked about this last week. They said the best way we can understand how not to commit adultery is add rules that tell us how close we are to committing adultery. It's very simple. I see this in premarital couples all the time. Can we make out? Can we kiss? At what point are we crossing the line? That, that's the question that is always being wrestled with. And it's true here. This is what the, the, the people of God before this were doing. We can't commit adultery sleeping with someone's wife, but could I kiss her? Can I make out with her? What if we go to second base, third base? Is that okay? 
And so what, what, what Jesus wants to do is trek this thing back and go backwards. Now, the, the way that we can understand what he's doing and getting at the heart is actually, I think, the most important word. Seems like it's not an important word. In verse 28, see it again. It's the word looks, okay? Looks is a very helpful word, and unfortunately, we just see it, and there's different translations that you're going to see why you guys have in this. So there's two parts of looks that I want you to see. First is the grammar, okay? I know we don't love grammar. <laughs> We're at church, not, not uh, English class, but the reality is this matters. Looks in the grammar is what is called a present participle. Ooh, Sean sounds fancy. It's a present participle. Whenever you have a participle in Greek, it's safe to always add ing. So you could say looking. Now, um, the, the idea is <clears throat> that you're, um, you're looking, the present participle would say you're looking for a long period of time. You're looking. You're looking. Now, now we have a word for that, don't we? It's called staring, right? And that's why some of your translations say stare. Because looking, the present participle here is a breakdown of going, I'm looking at this. Um, maybe uh, the, the way that we can understand uh, how, how this ends up playing out, uh, playing out is um, I can look at something and it goes by real quick. This is why some of you uh, fellas in the room, you're like, I just saw it and therefore I committed adultery. That's not what he's saying. It's staring at a long time for a long time. So on your way here, you saw a lot of cars, right? Driving. Most likely you didn't memorize those cars, um, staring is, is something different. You're staring at something, and the only reason you stare at it is because it's crazy, it's broken, it's beautiful. That's the reason you stare. Everything else that you look at quickly, honestly, goes away pretty fast. So there's the grammar, but listen, pause that for a second. The grammar and the meaning give us something wild. There's a word in Greek that is to look. That's not the word Matthew uses here. As a matter of fact, when he says looking out at the crowd at the beginning of the sermon, it's a different word. He wants to uh, unpack something else. In Greek, this is the word blepo. Now, blepo, if you want to know the definitive uh, definition of any Greek word, there's a golden standard in the Greek world called the BDAG, B-D-A-G. This is the definition of the BDAG for the word uh, uh, blepo, if, if, you know, if you're curious, right? It says this, to see something physical but have perception with it. Okay, so, so meaning, here's what I would say. Um, I see, let's play, we're all playing hide and seek. I can see you, I see you. Uh, look, I found you, I see you. Or I can say, no, 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 and I can be real weird and awkward. No, I see you. No, 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 hey, I see you, <laughs> right? Then you're like, okay. And this is actually what we, we ask God to do. We ask God to see us. We don't mean for him to get off his throne and to like physically see us. We want him to see our situation. There's a perception that's going on here. As a matter of fact, in uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 18, Jesus says they have eyes, but they can't see. He doesn't mean they have eyes and they're blind. He means they can't see beyond what's in front of them. There's something going on. We use the same kind of conversation with discernment. There's something going on in our mind. So the, the grammar says you stare at, but you're not just staring at with your eyes. You are mulling over with your mind. As a matter of fact, if I was to give a definition, here's how I would say this. But I say to you that anyone who stares at something mentally working it over. That's, I think, ultimately the definition of look. Now, here's why this matters. You are staring at something mentally working it over with lustful intent in your heart. That's the next part here. You're staring at not something, but you're staring at someone, a woman with lustful intent. So when you stare at something, the immediate question is to go, why, why are you staring at that? Well, it's a car accident. Why are you staring at that? Because it's beautiful. Why are you staring at that? It's a sunset. You have a reason as to why you're staring at it. Why are you staring at this? Because you want to fuel your sexual desire. 
That's what this is. You're staring at it. You're working it over in your mind. So let's just call it what it is in this moment. As you're staring at it, you're hoping her shirt goes a little bit lower. You're hoping she wears those pants. And if, and if those things don't happen, you're imagining what would happen if she did. That's what's happening. That, that language there of a woman with lustful intent. Um, I asked Candace this last week, because um, I, I don't know. I'll leave this up to you. But is the word lust a churchy word? I don't know if I hear my non-believing friends really, outside of maybe bloodlust, I don't hear like you desire to kill somebody. I don't hear that often. If I went to someone like, dude, you're lusting after her, he'd be like, what? Like, um, and, and I don't know what it is. So the, the words are epithumios. Epe means upon. Thumios is where we get our word will from. So it means upon will. We, we think of like a, a desire and a desire would be a good thing. So if it said, and you desire a woman with, or I'm sorry, and you have a woman with a desirous intent might not be as bad, but there's obviously more going on here than this. So, so here's what I want to stop. I think what's beautiful about something like this is um, the Bible's got a lot of miles on it and it knows human beings. And so can I just say this? Set the Greek and the definitions aside. I don't need to give you a background for this. If you're a guy, you know exactly what you're doing when you do this. That, the Bible, uh, like, the Bible acknowledges this in someone like Judah who sees the prostitute in Genesis 38. Or maybe a, a story you're more familiar with. What does David do as he stands on his tower? He sees Bathsheba. He sees what he likes. And from there, what's going on in his heart, he lives out sin. But the Bible calls it early on. This is the issue. And this is what Jesus is doing. As a matter of fact, if you're a woman, you know what this is like. You know what it's like for someone to stare at you with lustful intent. Now you might ask, well, wait a minute, hold on, doesn't, isn't like, don't women also lust after men? We'll get to that, okay, we'll get to that. We'll unpack that here in a second. But what he's using is this um, idea of a man lusting after a woman. The Bible is um, wise enough to know human experience. You don't need me, fellas, fellas, fellas. You don't need me to unpack this moment for you. Ladies, you don't need me to unpack this moment for you. You know exactly when this is happening, okay? So that idea, when you're mulling over in your mind, uh, imagining, creating scenarios, whatever it is, you know when you're doing that. With that statement, he goes on to say, what you're doing in that moment is, or this person has committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, um, heart's a weird word for us. For Jews, hearts are like the epicenter of all that they are. I think John Delhu, or, uh, uh, Jonathan uh, Pennington has a great quote where he says this, the explicit language of the heart here is one of the clearest examples of the deep, consistent theme of inward purity that pulses through all the sermon. Meaning, you're sitting there saying, well, man, I'm not sleeping with her. I'm not uh, kissing her. I'm not doing anything. And Jesus wants to deal with this issue. He wants to deal with inward purity. Inward purity. He goes on to say this, God sees and cares about the inner person. Because of this ethical command here, because of, uh, because of this, the ethical command here is based not just on the explicit action of adultery, but much more pervasively on adulterous intent. Listen to what he says. This is Jesus preaching again a whole person righteousness. Uh, one of the um, uh, believers early on, St. Methodius of Olympus, he says this, for it is not the fruit of adultery that he commands us to cast out, but its seed. So you want to wrestle like the Talmud, like the people before. You want to wrestle with, honestly, like your non-believing friends. You want to be Christian at heart, but you want to be actively Mormon, honestly. You want to live out uh, putting God in your back pocket because you did the right things. Uh, legalism helps us control God. He owes us something as long as I don't cross that line. Jesus goes, homie, it's all about here. It's, it's right here. This is what we've got to deal with. One of the desert fathers says, um, though you may keep your virginity in that moment, you prostitute your soul. 
So there's something here that Jesus wants to deal with. And actually, I think going back to verse 27, that is why I don't think he's just referencing the seventh command, but he's going to dig into the 10th command because coveting, desiring something that's not yours is really at the heart of what he's getting at. So with that being said, I want to stop for a second um, and I got to stay close to my notes because I went way over last night. So I'll do my best to to get what we can. Um, I really want to ask before we go on to 29 and 30, like cutting off your hand, gouging out your eye, what exactly is Jesus saying here? And, and I think this is important. So I want to first just address those of you who grew up in the church, because I think there's going to be some roadblocks for those of you who grew up in the church that, that you're going to hear something Jesus is not saying. So let me just kind of carte blanche say to all of us, Jesus is not saying sex is bad. As a matter of fact, there's an entire book that Jesus holds to that devotes itself to the joyous exploration of sexual activity. Jesus is not saying sex is bad. Sex was his idea. He came up with the idea of sex. He's not saying that. What he is saying is adultery is bad. Now, of course, you have sex when you commit adultery, but, but you, listen, read between the lines of what he's saying here, um, and this is important. Actually, there are good versions of sex, and there are bad versions of sex, meaning sex is a good thing, but the distortion of this is when you do this with it. And maybe the greatest example I can give you is the example that I gave you with fire uh, last week when it came to anger. Uh, as a matter of fact, at the end of that book that I just mentioned, which is called The Song of Solomon that Jesus holds to, to the joyous exploration of sexual interaction, um, at the very end of it, you want to know what Solomon uh, describes sex as? He describes it as fire. And I was meditating on that this week, and I was tripping because, think about this for a second, um, all the parameters of how we call fire good or bad are the exact parameters that we call sex good or bad. And it's very, very simple. As long as fire as is in its proper place, then it's good. If it goes outside of its proper place, it's bad. Fire in a fireplace is good as long as it stays in the fireplace. If it goes outside of the fireplace, that's a bad fire. In the campfire is a good as long as it stays within the campfire. If it goes outside of that, it becomes bad. And this is exactly what's taking place. When, when sex goes outside of the boundaries, the confines in which it was created for, to be enjoyed for, and I would say ultimately enjoyed for, the most joy is found in these confines. That's ultimately how we can enjoy fire. That's ultimately how we can enjoy sex. When it goes outside of that, it becomes bad sex. Now, um, I, I want to give a quick side note here. Um, and this is what put me over last night, but I'm going to go for it, okay? Um, <laughs> Some of you are in the room right now and you're not Christians. And, and maybe let's just assume maybe even if everyone is a Christian, you know people who are not Christians. And immediately at this point, when I begin to categorize based on what Jesus is saying here, there are good versions of sex and bad versions of sex. Christianity as a whole keeps getting these rocks thrown at it um, in the name of toxic sexuality. See, what you're doing is you're mitigating and you're, you're, you're uh, de- you know, oppressing my uh, evolutionary following of sexual interaction and expression. And so Christians get this label that we're ultimately like confining sex. We're not letting it grow. And so there's toxic sexuality. And so let me, can I just speak directly to you real quick or directly to your friend? Um, here's what I would say to you. Um, at its core, we actually both agree there are bad versions of sex and good versions of sex. We may not agree what they are, But listen, um, we would agree rape is a bad sexual expression. Molestation is a bad sexual expression. I'm assuming we agree on that. Now, here's the difference. My sexual ethic comes from a place that's not determined by me that has been in place for a very long time. I'm being told my sexual ethic, and it's set. 
Okay. Now we can agree that this is a bad rape or molestation or whatever it is, is a bad version uh, uh, or uh, uh, a bad uh, rolling out of sexual interaction. But the difference is your, the way that you arrive there is completely relative. Meaning because you hold to a relative truth, you have to have arbitrary rules what determine bad sexual expression. We both agree there are bad sexual expressions, but how you determine yours is, I mean, let me give you one of the examples you use. As long as it's consent. As long as they both agree, then it's fine, okay? Now, let me ask, who said that? Who determined that? Now, let's just play that. Okay, fine, I'll give you that. Let's say that's fair. You have to add more rules, which are completely arbitrary and relative, because what if I say, well, fine, what if a 10-year-old consents to have sex with a 45-year-old? Now, immediately, you're gonna go, no, that's not right, because they've gotta be 18. Well, who said that? Like, who got to determine that? And so what you have is a relative sexual ethic And man, I would love to unpack this. If you ever want to get together, I genuinely would love to unpack this. What I'm saying here in the moment is your relative sexuality kind of casting stones at us, telling us we hold a toxic sexuality. We have a firm grasp on what our sexual ethic is as we say God tells us what it is. And this is important because I want to tell you, this passage is talking to Christians, okay? And so you may disagree and you may accuse us of all this, but we're saying, hey, listen, We're not trying to start this war on sexuality. The church is responding to your stones. You're throwing at us, accusing us of toxic sexuality. We're going, wait a minute, we're not, I mean, honestly, those who've been coming to Pella for a year, I've spent maybe, maybe six Sundays on this conversation. It is not every Sunday we get up, hey, welcome to Public Communities, my name's Sean. We really are against homosexuality. We're against uh, uh, lustful thoughts. That's what we're against. No, that's not what we do. The reality is we respond saying, no, we have a set sexual ethic based on the creator of the universe. Now, that person, I wanna go back to the believers, that person immediately goes to you and says, as long as um, what they're doing doesn't harm anyone, then it's not bad. And I actually want to prod at that for a second. And then I promise we'll move on. Um, There are two things that I want to tell you as a believer that um, are inconsistent with your worldview if you hold to that idea. As long as it's not affecting anyone. And this homie's in his room right now. He's looking at a screen. He's doing what he wants with that that image. That's what he's doing. He's not hurting anybody. There's two things. Number one, as a believer, for the love of God, okay, listen, um, our sins do not only have effects Um, horizontally. Somewhere along the line, we have forgotten that we serve a holy God and sin first and foremost is against him. Our sins are vertically offensive. It's an affront on his holiness. I don't care if your friends say homosexuality isn't bad, pornography isn't bad. We're telling you in his holiness, who he is, we say, we've got a better way. We flip him the bird and say, I know what ultimately brings human flourishing. This is what I want to do. And so our response is a front first and foremost, forget what they say, forget what you believe. He says it's sin, he's holy, and we are offending him. I like, I gotta like, wish I had a wood pulpit, I'd pound it right now. This is like a, a fire and brimstone type gospel that we have forgotten and we've kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater. He is holy. He's holy. We sin against him. My kids fight, they are sinning against each other, but I made the rules. And in Candace and I making these rules, they sin against us breaking our rules. Let's first start with God. But the second problem with this, this guy sitting in his room, doing what he wants with this image or this video, um, is actually it not hurting anyone is absolutely incorrect. 
So let me just first start with that. There are vertical uh, effects with God. But the second part is they're wrong. There are horizontal effects. Let me just speak very candidly. Pornography is a great example because you could say it's not affecting anyone. I'm telling you, forget Barna, forget Pew Research. We're talking secular humanists, social scientists are against this stuff, not because it's holiness, but at its core, it is affecting human flourishing. I mean, the data is so unbelievably clear. We're talking less than 1%, less than 1% of all sex trafficking would take place without the porn industry. I mean, I, just Google it. Forget everything. Like Jashan saying it. You can Google this all you want. More than 85% of all child molesters and all those who rape all have been addicted to pornography. So for us to say, Jesus is looking at it and go, if you don't deal with this sexual intense stuff at your heart level, I know how humanity works. I'm looking at the landscape of humanity. You offend me and I'm your God, but you also mess up humanity. The idea of it's not affecting anyone is wrong. That's not true. And Jesus sees this. And so he wants to address the seed, not just the fruit. He wants to go at the core of who you, who you and I are. So with that being said, back to the main point, Jesus is ultimately saying there are good versions of sex and there are bad versions of sex. And you lusting after this person with sexual desire in your heart, imagining, drumming up uh, uh, things that should go on, that's an issue. He wants to get at the heart here. As a matter of fact, Luther, I thought, has a great quote in just understanding this for men and women alike. He says, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. You can't keep the devil from suggesting thoughts, but you can choose not to dwell or act on them. And so there is something for us to be said. Listen, I know sexual temptation and desire is it's absolutely going to arrive at your doorstep one day. That's real. But what we do with that is what Jesus is trying to get at before the action, what we do with it in our heart. Um, one more quick side note before we move on. Um, why does it specifically in this passage talk to men? Why is it using men? And I, I, maybe this is an oversimplification, but I think he's using an oversimplification kind of generic idea of sexual distortion, okay? Meaning... In all of human history, uh, do I need to say this? In all of human history, it has been men who have predominantly been guilty of taking advantage of women in rape. When you think of someone being raped, I'm not saying there aren't exceptions. You guys, of course, women desire men and, and think of them with lustful intent in the heart. Of course, matter of fact, one of the greatest examples we use in the church is a woman lusting after a man in Potiphar's wife, right? I mean, you could read at the end of Proverbs 9, of course, women lust after men, but Jesus is talking about a sexual ethic and he's using an oversimplification, a generic idea for us to understand, hey, it's been men predominantly when it comes to rape, when it comes to distortion of this, when it comes to thinking of a woman with less than the heart, it's predominantly been men who've distorted this. Of course, there are exceptions to the rule. Of course, women do this as well, but it's predominantly in human history been men. And so he wants to bring out this idea that ultimately this kind of thing doesn't fly in my kingdom. And can I just say a side note on that side note? I also think he's at a, like a, a covert level saying women uh, will feel protected in his kingdom. Honestly, I think there's a subliminal message for him to be able to state, and he'll go on and actually talk more about this later when he talks about his kingdom, but that, that women don't have to worry about this in his kingdom, right? So I'll leave that for what it is. So the question then goes on to verse 29 that we have to answer is, well, then how bad is this? Fine, I, 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 sh- I don't want to think of uh, a woman with lustful intent. That's not what I want to do or I'm committing adultery. He just states facts. Well, then from there, he gives us verse 29 and 30. How bad is it? He says, as we read before, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. And throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off 
and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that the whole body go into hell. Let's break this down together. First and foremost, um, historically, this is obviously seen as allegorical. Um, there have been some people who've seen it as literal, but I think it's clear that the text here is, it, it is allegorical. I think, um, what we do sometimes with that, though, is we say, of course, Jesus isn't saying gouge out your eye and cut off your hand. And so we lessen the extreme nature of what he is saying. So how do we take the analogy of what he's saying um, and not lessen by saying, oh, it's just an analogy, not lessen the emphasis? Because if I'm being honest with you, um, it is better to lose a hand or an eye than to go to hell. It is. I mean, I'm just being honest. So how do we not lessen that? Well, let's, let's break down some of this uh, as to what he's saying. First, he mentions, the first thing I want to look at is the right eye and the right hand. Um, immediately when I saw this, I just went to work and I was like, all right, what on earth is he saying here? And I was actually fascinated how much hands are involved in scripture, how much the word hand appears, um, uh, specifically when it comes to sin. Uh, um, one of the examples that I think of, and I'll give you a list here in a second, is it very intentionally, it could say that um, uh, Eve reached for the, sh- uh, the fruit, but it says she reached out with her hand and took it, these details. Um, and you could see this just if you're somebody who writes in your Bible, you could all see that in Genesis 4, 11. Uh, 37, 27, you can see in Exodus 21, 20, Proverbs 10, 4. I was actually fascinated by the fact that that Potiphar's wife situation with Joseph, it mentions her right hand that she still holds on to his garb. I think that's interesting. Um, not to get too weird on you, but actually in the Song of Solomon, the right hand is used three times. The right hand is used three times to, um, how do I say this? Because we're in a church context, to fondle or stimulate a woman. That That's honestly, and so I, I kind of sit back and go, okay, what is he saying? And, and then I read a commentary from John Delhu say that I thought was helpful. This is what I think he's saying why he talks about your right eye and right hand. A lot of us equate this immediately to like masturbation and I don't think that's what he's saying here. He says, uh, the teaching presumes a logical relationship between the eye and the hand. Some are quick to read masturbation into the warning, yet this is not the clear intent of the passage. The simpler logic is moving from thought, like what we see in our eyes, with our eye, we begin to think, to action. The body follows the eyes. In the simplest form, Jesus wants to get at, you see something and you take it, right? Now, the language that he says here, the next part is your right uh, right eye, right hand for both of them, whether you gouge them out or cut them off, look at it, those three words, you were to throw it away. He immediately gives us this um, uh, self-imposed judgment. And I think at the core, what he's saying is, and, and I'll unpack this here in a second, but he's saying you can either cut off your hand or you're gonna be cut off. I think that's what he's saying. That, that's the, the kind of poetic way that he's saying it. Now, of course, this is analogous. This is um, hyperbole. I would, I would contend this. He doesn't quite literally mean, and I'm not trying to be funny, but if, 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 the, the, if cutting off a, a part of your body was to stop um, lusting after someone with your heart, then he missed a really important body part. I mean, the reality is there's something you can cut off that you don't have to worry about your hand or your eye at that point, right? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Okay. So the rea- and some believers in church history have actually done that. They've taken this a step further. And so the reality is, as we see this, we look at this, we go, it's obviously not about cutting off body parts, is it? No, there's something going on. And so I want to speak to those of you who are stuck in this sin right now, okay? Um, I said last week, the big thing for me that God continues and has worked on for a long time is anger. By God's grace, honestly, guys, I'm a pretty disciplined dude when it comes to this area. I've never been addicted to pornography. Um, I'm not saying I haven't thought lustful thoughts or been down the road that I've described earlier. I absolutely have. 
But, but for the most part, I, I haven't been in this world that it has um, brought me to slavery like it has for some of you. And so um, when it says this statement that it's better to gouge out your eye and cut off your hand, if it is analogous, what is it saying? And so I want to tell you the same thing that I would sit down with a guy or there's been instances where my wife and I have sat down with girls and, and talked about specifically what do you do when this is a struggle of yours? There's four things that I want to put in front of you. Number one, I want to encourage you um, that when you have kids... Um, one day, you don't set them up for the way that you, in, into the position that you are right now. Meaning, Song of Solomon in chapter three and chapter eight talks about waking this thing up before it's time. So I shared this with a college group uh, the other night. What my uh, daughters want to do is when they see the flowers on the peach tree uh, blooming right now or the roses in our front yard, they want to open them really fast. They want to pry them open. But that's not how flowers work. You have to give this time. And so I want just to encourage you before you're here already, I get it, but I want to encourage you just be mindful that you can waken this thing up early on. And as a parent, your job and your responsibility is to create some boundaries. With that being said, you're in the situation that you are. I want to read something to you from a guy named Clement of Alexandria. Here's the second thing that you can do. Okay. This can be a weird quote, but I'll explain it. He says, speak modestly to women, even directing your gaze toward the ground. Now that's a weird quote to, to give you. He's talking to the newly baptized and they say, we're struggling with sin. What do we do? And he says, speak modestly to women, setting your gaze to the ground. Candace and I, two summers ago, got to spend the day at a, a Greek monastery. And it was wild. When we were there, we noticed something about halfway through the day. Every time I talked to the monks, they would look at me and talk with me. And every time Candace talked with them, they would look at the ground. So they'd be talking with me, talking to me, and they would respond to Candace. And they, would, they actually would not look at her in her face. Now, that sounds so crazy or so extreme, but here's what Clement is getting at. Clement of Alexandria wants to put in front of you to discipline your mind and your hearts, discipline your body. Okay. Now, a lot of you guys use this language, cheesy language of bat your eyes or whatever it is, right? And I get it, but that is what he's saying. <clears throat> there is something to be said of, this is really, really difficult, okay? Can I just, I think one of the reasons I've had success in this, just like full disclosure and maybe too honest, um, I made a decision when I got married that I would never have sex with Candace on the same day I thought of another woman with lust in my heart. Now, that caused extreme um, frustration, within my soul because there were days that we didn't have sex that I wanted to have sex, but I didn't because, and you can read, can't tell you how many books I've read on this stuff, creating the pathways in my brain, I never wanted to use those things. And so you create these pathways in your brain and here's what I wanted to do. I only want to think about this person. This person stimulates me. This person arouses me. This person is the one I want to have sex with. That's what I wanted to do with my brain, but I had to discipline my body. I had to discipline my body. And we talk about sanctification. Like I'm saying this like, oh, cool. The pastor said it. It's great. It's hell. It's honestly hell. And this is what's being put in front of us. I'd rather go through hell right now than go through hell for all of eternity. I'd rather experience this right now than ultimately go into judgment. The third thing that I think is important part of this is, um, homie, this is a black hole. It's never going to say enough. Um, Stop watching this stuff you shouldn't watch. You know you shouldn't jump on the gram. You know you should not um, ultimately watch that show. Uh, Lust makes you stupid, and you are going to fail in that moment. You are. You're going to fail in that moment. So put it away. Put it away. Like, get a dumb phone. That's so crazy. What am I going to do with a dumb phone? Well, it's almost as extreme as cutting off your hand, isn't it? Right? Getting a dumb phone, like that's so crazy. Don't remove the tone of it. And then lastly, this is a very practical thing, um, but if you're not married, get married. If you are married and you're struggling with this, have more sex. Now, I say this like, 
and knowing full well that's not going to deal with the lust issue. I know that. I've seen this in, in uh, uh, relationships before. But I will say it will help, okay? If you can push in this direction, it will help. As a matter of fact, uh, back to Del say. He says, God created sex to sustain life and community. Most human beings are hardwired for sexual attraction, which is a precognitive response to beauty. Instead of fighting sexual desire, pretending to be superhuman, we should seek marriage with another disciple. Find someone else who follows Jesus and marry them. If we are married, seek regular union. If neither option is available, we seek God's greater beauty. Celibacy, of course, can be frustrating, but it is better than fornication because it can lead to hell. That last statement here, that you would lose one of your members, that your whole body go to hell, um, is the statement that I think we need to lean a little bit more into our Puritan brothers and sisters, okay? I couldn't encourage you enough to read John Owen's The Mortification of Sin. Read that book and see how our believers before us thought of sin. Jesus in this moment is treating you like an adult. He's telling you Romans 5 tells us judgment is delayed. Judgment isn't happening. So right now, step in and judge yourself because judgment is going to come. It is. And so I think that's important for us to be able to see um, at the text. Which, can I just say this last note on that? Um, in this text, FYI, it actually switches from the active to the passive, meaning um, you're the active agent. You can gouge out your eye and cut off your hand. You're the active agent. If you don't do that, it switches to the passive. You don't get a choice. You will be thrown into hell, okay? So FYI for whatever the grammar nerds in, in this. So with that being said, I want to finish with my last five minutes with you. Um, and talking about something in this passage that Jesus doesn't state, but's going to address next week when it comes to divorce, that needs to be addressed a little bit right now when we talked about the boundary. What was that boundary of fire? That boundary of fire is what we call covenant. Now, I think that's another probably religious churchy word, but covenant is important here because what we do within covenant is the integrity of sex finds its fulfillment only in that boundary. So we've got to understand that boundary because instead of treating sex like um, uh, within the confines of covenant, we treat it like a consumer good, meaning um, maximize your pleasure, minimize your pain, so use this person's body to maximize your pleasure. That's what you can do in this moment. And so what happens is outside of covenant, the integrity of of, of sex is being removed. And so let me ask you this. Is there any other um, area in your life that you would do this with? Like a great example would be finances. So you just meet her or you just meet him. Would you honestly, that night, would you give them your bank account number? Like, I'll just give them my PIN number. Here's my debit card. Now, of course not. Because what you do is you recognize, and I go through this with premarital couples all the time. When you get married, have one bank account. That's important for you to do. Know who's spending what, when it's being spent, part of your budget. Well, you do that in the confines of this boundary when you're committed to one another. And yet what we wanna do is we wanna have lustful intent with this person. We wanna go down that road with this person. Some of us engage physically with this person. And we think, man, financially, that'd be crazy. That could ruin my life. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what he's saying right now, okay? To be able to engage in this one part of the union without the boundary of the union, it denigrates the integrity of sex. This is exactly what C.S. Lewis says. I think he nails this in Mere Christianity. He says, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one union, which is sexual, from all other kinds of union, which are meant to go along with it and make up the total union. Sex is part of something else. And so this is where I want to finish our time together. Um, I wrestled with whether or not to share this, but I shared this with the college group two weeks ago because obviously most college students are in this stage right now of their life where they're processing getting married. And so we talked about lust and we talked about our sex, uh, dating, and marriage. And the part on sex I think is, is appropriate here that I want to share with you, okay? 
So um, if you're in the college group, you're just going to have to hear it twice here. here this is, um, I want to go back to that book of Song of Solomon uh, real quick. In this book, it's a back and forth between two lovers. Now, the entire thing is about love. But here's the problem. You and I think of love the same way we think about everything else. The way Plato and Western education, you can read a book called Richard, uh, by Richard Tarnas called The Passion of the Western Mind. The way that we think of things has been trained by Plato. You went to English and then you went to history and then you went to math and then you went to science. You have learned to think of things in buckets. That's why you can separate sex from everything else. But that's not how Jews think of things. As a matter of fact, in the Song of Solomon, there are three words that are used in the Song of Solomon that help us understand how Jews think about this. So let me give those three words to you so you can see. The first word that's used is the word raya. Now, the word raya is not uh, specific between a man and a woman, but he uses this word and it's a a gender neutral word. It's the same word that's used in 1 Samuel 18 between David and Jonathan, that they love each other. Uh, To be honest with you, and I told the college group this, this is the reason that we say no homo, honestly. Like you see a guy and you're like, I really like hanging out with this guy. I love being around him. No homo. I'm just telling you, I really like being around him. That's the reason we do that, right? I'm not trying to denigrate it. But like the the reality is that we don't know what to do with this man crush. We really like being around them. So two people come together. Raya takes place. I really love being around you. Like you're my best friend. That's Raya. He uses that word in Song of Solomon. Now here's what's interesting. You can't have this next version of love without raya. The Jewish mind doesn't think of things in buckets. It thinks of, think of things in uh, building platforms. So you have raya. And you know what raya can grow into? This is specifically between a man and a woman, ahava. Ahava is the declaration for those of you who are married that you said to your uh, spouse on your wedding day. Ahava is a covenantal love. It says it's strong as the sea, strong as fire. It's a seal set on the heart. You can read in Song of Solomon verse uh, uh, chapter eight, and I forget what verse. The idea is that I don't care where you go. I don't care if you lost all your limbs. I'm not going anywhere. This is the covenantal love that we talk about. I'm set. I love you as a friend, and this friendship has grown into something. This is specific between a man and a woman that you stand before one another and you say, I love you so much that I want to spend the rest of my life with one another. And here's what's crazy. It's only from there can we get our third version of love, which is dode. Dode in Hebrew literally means to boil over. Uh, to boil over, the idea is you raya someone and that raya turns into ahava and only then can you express those two things with dode. The world wants to have sex, but the world doesn't have dode. We understand, or at least maybe the world, at least with the expression, because I don't think you need to be a believer to experience raya and ahava, building on that, then you have dode. And I'm not talking fireworks. If anybody's been married longer than a week, you know that every time you have sex is not fireworks, right? Sometimes let's just get it done, right? The reality is, that's awkward when your pastor says things, uh, it's already nine o'clock, I gotta hurry, okay? Um, Like the the reality is dote is an expression or a fulfillment, a laying out of this is what happens. And so here's why it's important. Within the confines of covenant, listen, the confines of covenant, you're welcome to lust after that person in the confines of covenant. Think of their body, wishing this would happen. That's appropriate. Dode is an expression of that. You cannot have this without these other things. As a matter of fact, Song of Solomon uses them so interchangeably, he's not confused. He's trying to say these things go together. These things ultimately go together. So I always want to finish with a gospel point, but can I just say this? Um, Jesus dying on the cross for all that we're talking about here right now is to make a holy people. And so there's moments where we want to go, okay, but there's grace. There is grace. Of course there's grace. But this is the tone. The tone in front of us is, but there's also judgment. 
And so in this conversation, he's desiring to make you a holy people in this process of sanctification. And the one thing you can't say is this is extreme. That's extreme to gouge out your eye and to cut off your hand. That's the one thing you can't say after pastorally counseling so many of these guys. I'm telling you right now, I'm just stepping aside. I would have much rather they cut off their hand or gouged out their eye than to be where they are right now. I know two guys, um, one specifically who is um, uh, on uh, uh, um, uh, schizophrenic drugs, medication, because he did not ever check these things. And it went down to such uh, long paths of fantasizing, uh, sexual exploits. He went down paths he never thought he would, that his brain is like fried from this stuff. I guarantee you, I set this dude right in front of us. I go, homie, you tell me, would you have rather cut off your hand, gouged out your eye, or gone down this path? I promise you, he would have said, no, no, give me that all day. Take my hand, take my eye. The one thing you can't say is this is extreme. And I speak to everyone, but fellas, this thing will eat you alive. I know you think you're the snowflake. That's the exception. You're not. You are not unique. The devil knows exactly what he's doing, and he will slowly eat you up. Be careful. Let's pray. Father, we come to you right now um, and we acknowledge that we, we are sinners, that um, you know, the proclivity of our mind and our hearts just continues to gravitate towards being antithetical to all that you put in front of us in the way to live and human flourishing. Um, we're grateful at the same time you've made us a new creature, a new creation, and in that you're, um, you're making us into what you've already made us. And so our flesh is going to war with that every day. And so I pray, Spirit, that you would guide us in this, that you would give us boldness. I pray for everybody in this room that you would give them the ability to navigate um, situations and rooms really wisely. Um, what they watch, give them wisdom. I pray, convict them. I pray you would show them the downfall of what this is, that they would not just hear shame, but they would hear judgment um, and that they would hear, Jesus, you offer them a better path uh, I, I pray that you would see that you love them deeply. Um, I pray that they would see that um, they desperately need you in this. And so I pray that uh, you would use your community around them to, to guide them in that. Be with us. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.